Hey, listeners, just a reminder that the history of everything sex is for mature audiences, so listen with discretion. And don't forget, we're ready for suggestions, ideas, stories, whatever you want to tell us. Just email us at thehistoryofsexpod at gmail.com. Thanks! Good evening, Miss Terry. Hey, good evening, Melinda. How are you? I am absolutely wonderful. How are you? You know what? Living a dream. Yeah, yeah. Living You look, you look real dream. pretty tonight. Do I? You do. Is it my pink hair? It is. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and your little off-the-shoulder look on the shirt. Oh, look how burnt I am. That'll do it. Yeah, so I've been... Outside. Pre-boobing it all day. Okay. Well, I don't blame you. <laughs> Would you like to say you're welcome? Sure. Welcome to the history of everything sex. <laughs> I Just love a little, it. something a little simple. I love it. Um, are you ready you? to dive right on in? I'm I'm excited. What do you got for me? So one of our very dedicated longtime listeners suggested mm-hmm. that we do an episode on the first test tube baby. Thank you, Melissa Burns. Thank you, Melissa. And I'll tell you what. What? The history of artificial reproductive technology is scandalous. Is it really? Girl, there's some scandal here. So I'm ready for the tea. I love juicy gossip. So spill it. Okay. So to start, I want to list and define the different types of ART or artificial reproductive technology, just so you kind of know what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So there's IVF. Usually it's actually um, IVF-ET. So IVF-ET, which is in vitro fertilization, embryo transfer. Okay. So in vitro means outside the body, which for the record to me sounds completely ass backward. In right, it vitro. should be it could should be called non vitro. Yeah, or outer vitro. Or out vitro, not in Exto vitro. vitro. Or yeah. Out yeah. Or outside the body. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the egg is fertilized by sperm in a petri dish, and then a few days later the embryo is placed in the uterus. Okay. Now, sometimes the sperm is actually injected directly into the egg. And this is called ICSI, or intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So it's like what you see in um, like videos and stuff where that little yeah. needle's going in. It puts the sperm right in there. Right in there. Exactly right. Oh, it's cheating. Yeah. I'm we just kidding. Exactly I'm joking. Which, it's not cheating. We know exactly <laughs> which sperm we want, exactly which egg we right, want. Right, right, right. I'm joking. Just, One way to do it. Cheating. Yes, it's not cheating. <laughs> It's science. It's science. That's right. Yes, it is. Babies born as a result of this type of insemination are what we have come to know as test tube babies. Mm. Although they're not actually grown in a test tube, obviously. Right. But that's just, that's what took off when this all first started happening. Now, on the other hand, sometimes the fallopian tubes are the actual Petri dish. So there's gift G-I-F-T, which Mm -hmm. stands for gamete intrafallopian transfer. 
And this is when a few eggs and some sperm are placed in the fallopian tube with the hopes that they'll like each other and make a baby. Mm -hmm. Okay, you couldn't, I mean, it's, you know, it's like mom and dad or, you know, the two moms putting their kids in the same room. Right. You know, and setting them, like, you can't get any better than that. Like, just, right. just do your thing. Um, then we also have ZIFT, Z-I-F-T, or zygote intrafallopian transfer. And this is when a sperm and an egg are put together in a Petri dish. And as soon as the egg is fertilized, that is put into the fallopian tube in hopes that it will continue to thrive and grow into an embryo and then a fetus. Mm -hmm. And lastly, we have FET, which is when a frozen embryo is transferred into the uterus. So those are the differences. So the biggest difference between ZIFT or zygote intrafallopian transfer and IVF is the amount of time. So, you know, petri dish, sperm, egg, oh, cute. It, it, it did its thing. It's starting to, um, you know, replicate a couple cells, couple cells, put it in versus mm -hmm. like letting it I almost said faster, um, letting, it, <laughs> letting it incubate for a couple days and really mm. become established before you put it in. So okay. IVF is, at this point, I feel like IVF is the most common way of, of doing any kind of a, um, transfer. All right. So now separately, besides, you know, all of the IVF type stuff, um, there is artificial insemination. And this is when semen or sperm or sperm in semen, whatever, are placed mm -hmm. in the vagina or in the cervix manually. So this might be done like if the biological father is impotent or he has a really low sperm count. So you want to make sure you actually get some sperm in there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also used when a sperm donor is used. Mm. So, you know, you could think of the turkey baster thing, which... <clears throat> Sort of, kind of is, but not exactly. Mm -hmm. So let's go way back to the beginning, as we do. So way back in 1790, there was a man named John Hunter. John was Scottish, but he moved to England to work with his older brother, who was a doctor. Uh, John had not had a formal education, but he was smart and he was very curious. So from what I read about him, I would venture to say that, so that was the first, you know, like I said, we don't know a whole lot of details about it, but it, he does go down as the first doctor to artificially inseminate a patient, which actually led to the birth of a baby. Mm. But anyway, over, over the following six decades, artificial insemination was not really the forefront of medical research. Then in 1855, <clears throat> J. Marion Sims opened the Women's Hospital in New York. Sims, who is a controversial dude who we will have a whole episode on in the future when I can stomach it, um, attempted to artificially inseminate six different women, a total of 55 times, with only one successful try, although that pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. What he did wrong, it seems, we figured out later, mm -hmm. was that he paid absolutely no attention to the woman's menstrual cycles. No. Oh. He didn't know that it, you had to try the insemination around the time of ovulation. Mm. So he was just all willy-nilly shooting people up with sperm whenever he felt like it. Mm -hmm. 
1884, William Pancoast, a medical professor at Sansom Street Hospital in Philadelphia, was approached by a 31-year-old woman. Her husband was a 41-year-old wealthy merchant, and the two had tried to become pregnant for quite a while with no success. So she wanted to know if William could help her. The doctor examined the woman, but found no obvious reason for her inability to get pregnant. He had her husband come in for a visit. Again, he found no obvious reason why the man was unable to produce a pregnancy. The only thing that stood out was that the man had had gonorrhea years before. Mm. So William assumed that a treatment for gonorrhea now would make him right as rain and assured the couple they could expect to be pregnant within two months. Hmm. <clears throat> two months later, the woman was not pregnant. Mm -hmm. So Wi William concluded that the husband's seminal ducts must be permanently blocked, probably from the gonorrhea. Mm. So Dr. Pancoast had the woman come back in. Once there, he used chloroform to knock her out as they did at the time i guess they did that back then didn't they indeed they did he then injected semen into her cervix using a rubber syringe before putting gauze in her vagina to keep it from coming back out nine months later the woman gave birth to a healthy baby boy but how the husband's seminal ducts being blocked meant that the husband would not have any sperm in his semen well, it turns out that William had decided to use healthy semen. He His had own? six medical students oh. present for the insemination, and he chose the most good-looking of them to donate his semen for the procedure. Well, at least he picked a good-looking one. Right? I mean, got to have some He was at least thinking, it. right? Right. Yeah. It wasn't until after the birth of the baby that William told the husband what he had done. Instead of beating his ass like I would expect him to, mm -hmm. the husband was actually just appreciative. He was just happy to have a son. Yeah. Whatever. And they decided not to tell anyone else, including the mom. Oh. Whoa. Mm. Yeah. Whoa. Now. Golly. Fast forward oh, boy, 25 years changed. later. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Fast forward 25 years later. Dr. Hard. H-A-R-D. Dr. Hard had witnessed the whole thing. So he reached out to the son who was working as a businessman in New York now. And Dr. Hard told the 25-year-old man the whole story. He then shook his hand and submitted the story to the journal Medical World, where it was published in 1909 for the whole world to read about. I don't know at what point the mother found out i don't know if she read the journal i don't know uh -huh. if it, you know like 1909 word doesn't travel as fast right as it right now. i don't know if her son called her from new york i don't know mm -hmm. okay so then years and years go by we're now in 1973 in 1973 doris and john delzio of new york went searching for help getting pregnant Doris and John had first met in 1966. John owned a dental practice in Plattsburgh, New York. 
Doris applied for a job as a receptionist there. John, seeing how bad her handwriting was, did not hire her. However, the two did start talking and eventually dating, and they got married on December 20th, 1968. During the honeymoon, Doris suffered an ovarian cyst, which ruptured. This is not uncommon for women of childbearing age. But anyway, a year later, Doris was not pregnant despite all of their trying. She already had a daughter, Tammy, from her first, from a previous relationship. So she didn't understand why she wasn't succeeding in getting pregnant again. Her husband also had a child from a previous marriage. So they just couldn't figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. Her ob Dr. William Sweeney, diagnosed her with blocked fallopian tubes. Mm-hmm. Three attempts were made to surgically repair the tubes, followed by three attempts at artificial insemination. Doris did have one pregnancy in 1970, but the pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Doris and John were understandably very upset. The gynecologist mentioned that there was research being done on other means of assisted reproduction and pointed them in the direction of a Dr. Landrum Shettles. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. So Landrum was a surgeon at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York, and he was known for skirting around hospital rules, neglecting to ask permission before trying new things. At Mm -hmm. 64 years old, he had become quite a wild card. When Doris and John consulted with him, he was eager to help. His research in in vitro fertilization had prepared him for just such a moment. Mm -hmm. So here's how the shenanigans went down. Buckle up. Buckling up. Doris took fertility medications to increase her production of eggs for six months. Then she went into New York Hospital on September 12, 1973, where where her gynecologist, Dr. Sweeney, removed a sample of her eggs. The eggs were placed in two test tubes and handed to her husband, John. Like, literally, he's like, here's the eggs in the tubes. Here you go, husband. Then Uh John drove the precious cargo five miles to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital where he met Landrum in the lobby. John was instructed to go into the bathroom and collect a sample of his semen. He obliged and handed the goods to the doctor. So now the doctor's in the lobby of the hospital. He's got eggs in one hand, semen in the other hand. So he hustles to the hospital research lab where he mixes the semen with the eggs and then he carefully places them in the incubator. In four days, he would surgically transplant the specimen into Doris's uterus, hopefully producing the first test tube baby in the whole world. However, Landrum couldn't keep his excitement to himself. He told a colleague who went to the head of the hospital with the news. Raymond Van Weyl, the chairman of the OB Gin department, was pissed. Mm-hmm. Whereas Landrum was a socially awkward, weird guy who seemed to never leave the hospital and had no regard for hospital or government regulations, 
Raymond was a business-focused leader who worried that Landrum's rule-breaking would land the hospital in hot water. <clears throat> Raymond liked the rules, and he believed that they should be followed. Rules are, you know, rules are mm -hmm. there for a reason. Mm -hmm. However, when colleagues recommended that he fire Landrum, Raymond just couldn't take a paycheck away from a man who supported his wife and seven children. Though mm. so instead, he demoted him to the position of triage nurse. Mm. Which, don't get me wrong, obviously, nurses are amazing. Right, right, right. But when you're a physician and you've gone to physician school, right, you break a few rules and they say, now you're a nurse. <laughs> right. It doesn't right, even right. work that way. But right, you know, right, right. Whatever. So, thinking about how Dr. Landrum Shettles had put the hospital at risk of losing funding and facing costly lawsuits, should anything go wrong for the Delzios, Raymond called him to his office. Before Landrum arrived, Raymond had the test tube brought to his office where he opened it, exposing it to air and ruining any chance of this specimen resulting in a healthy embryo. Mm. A month later, Landrum resigned. Of course, Doris and John were beside themselves. They never did have a child together. Mm. The following summer, after nine months of barely getting out of bed, Doris blacked out in a department store and woke up with her arms full of baby clothes. Isn't that the saddest thing? That is very sad. So they decided to file suit against Raymond Van Wheel and and the hospital. Uh-huh. <clears throat> they sued for $1.5 million, claiming emotional distress, I'll mm -hmm. say. After four years of battling, they did win, but they were only awarded $50,000. Yeah. Now, on one hand, this made Doris feel better because at least she felt like she got a little bit of like a revenge, uh, you know, against this Raymond guy for ruining her shit. But John, on the other hand, he had spent four years neglecting his dental practice, which could have made a whole lot more money than $50,000. Mm. So he mm -hmm. kind of felt like, well, that that sucked. So to tie this part of the story up, Raymond... Mr. Open up a test tube in room air. Right, right, right. He eventually became the co-chair of the first IVF clinic in New York in 1981. While the clinic immediately had a waiting list of over 150 couples, Raymond did not live long enough to see any babies born from their work. He died of a heart attack later that year. Mm. Right. So finally, we get to the first successful baby born from in vitro fertilization or the first, quote unquote, test tube baby. Mm -hmm. For this, we start in Bristol, a city in southwest England. So Gilbert John Brown, who went by John, was born in 1941. He was a teenager when he and his partner had their first child, this is another juicy, gossipy story here. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So he was a teenager when he and his partner had their first child, Beverly. Mm -hmm. 
and they married four months after she was born, which obviously that would have been so scandalous mm-hmm. by itself. The couple had a second daughter, Sharon. Soon after Sharon came along, John's wife took off with a guy who worked at a hotel. Mm. Right. At that point, Beverly went to live with John's stepsister, who ended up raising her. Mm-hmm. And Sharon went to stay with other family. Soon after the breakup, 21-year-old John met 16-year-old Leslie Marion, and the two moved in together. 21, 16, mm-hmm. ra- kind of rapey. Mm-hmm. Eventually, bit. little Sharon, at the age of three, came to live with John and Leslie. Happy little family. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the couple had been living together for six years that they finally married. Six years of living in sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you had to wait till she was legal anyway. So then soon after they got married, Leslie found out that John was cheating and she threw his ass out of the house. But of course, they reconciled a while after a while. Meanwhile, John and Leslie had basically been trying to conceive for years with no success which was really taking an emotional toll on leslie she was becoming more and more depressed completely out of ideas leslie's doctor sent her to dr steptoe in manchester england steptoe 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 (laughs) patrick steptoe was an obgyn missed his calling he should have been a dance instructor he should have been i'm telling you Step well, toe, step toe, step. Yeah. Sadly, he was just an OB Jin who yeah. had in who had invented the laparoscope. <laughs> oh, he did. So I mean, you know. I okay. mean, this is kind of important, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> he actually pioneered the art of lap laparoscopy. Laparoscopy. Laparoscopy to see inside the human body. And then he used his invention. To remove eggs from the ovary to be fertilized. He partnered with Dr. Bob Edwards, who was an embryologist. Mm. The two of them started working together in 1968. They were able to successfully fertilize an egg outside the body. But whenever they would insert the embryo, it never resulted in a pregnancy. Uh-huh. They eventually realized that the hormones they were administering to their patients were throwing off the menstrual cycles, causing the women to immediately start menstruating and ending any chance of implantation. Huh. Uh, Yeah. So they were just fucking it all up. Right, right, right. But they did eventually perfect their technique just in time for their meeting with Leslie. So in November... 1977, Dr. Steptoe, Dr. Edwards, and their research partner, Jean Purdy, retrieved an egg from Leslie. They used John's sperm to fertilize the egg, and this was done in a Petri dish, which was placed in a jar called a desiccator, which to me sounds like it's desiccated, like it's hurting something or killing something. Yes, it does sound like that. But it's actually used to, like, keep everything happy, keep it at the perfect, you know, moisture level and all that stuff. Yeah, it does sound the opposite of that. Right. 
But Gene Purdy was able to actually watch the cells divide after fertilization, making her the first person ever to do so. Mm. Two and a half days later, the embryo was implanted into the uterus of Leslie Brown. And eight months later, Louise Joy Brown was born on July 25th, 1978, just before midnight during a planned C-section at Oldham District General Hospital. The healthy baby girl weighed five pounds, 12 ounces, and the birth was recorded supposedly because the doctors wanted to document the damaged fallopian tubes so that people could see that they truly did the IVF for a reason and not just as an experiment. The media had been following the story the whole time. As one might expect, there were mixed feelings. Some people felt that the doctors were playing God, that artificial reproduction was against the natural order. Others thought that this was a miracle that would help so many people become parents who had previously not been able to on their own. Mm -hmm. And some people were super angry. Others were overwhelmingly happy. So it ran the whole gamut. Mm. To be sure, Leslie and John were over the moon. They finally had the baby they had prayed for for so long. They did lots of interviews, traveling the entire United States as part of their media blitz. They wanted to get the word out that IVF was safe and that it was a wonderful, very special procedure that for some parents would make the impossible possible. Mm -hmm. Now, the couple did make some money off the book that they wrote, and they sold their story to one of the media companies. According to John, they were paid $150,000 for the story and $40,000 for their book. Though after taxes, he claims they received $50,000 for the story and $16,000 for the book. According to him, John bought a car for the family since they did not have one and Mm kind of need one, you know. Yeah. And then he put all the rest of the money into a trust for both Louise and Sharon. So while some judgy, nosy folks accuse them of just doing it for the money, I think that's ridiculous. Right, right. We know how much it costs to raise a baby. Yeah, exactly. And you think that this $66,000 was worth it? You know, right. whatever. Uh, The news people who interviewed them were not all that impressed with them, by the way. Apparently, neither John nor Leslie were well-educated or well-spoken. They weren't exactly the poster people for the wholesome English parents. Mm. Leslie, who had worked previously in an underwear factory and then a cheese factory, Mm. both of which sound equally disgusting, (laughs) um, was very introverted and awkward and barely said a word during the interviews. Mm. John, who had L-O-V-E tattooed on one hand and H-A-T-E tattooed on his other hand. Okay. <laughs> um, he really, you know, they were just like your average couple who wanted a baby, nothing fancy, nothing out of the ordinary, you know, and some of the media were like, 
could you have found like a better looking couple or could you have found some people who were better at this whole interviewing thing? Right, right, right. Because obviously that's what it's all about. Right. Now, the couple did go on to have a second daughter through IVF. Natalie was born in 1982 and she was the 40th baby born through IVF in the UK. Mm. She would later become the first IVF baby to have a baby conceived naturally. When she gave birth to her daughter, Casey, at age 17, the father was 23-year-old Lee Derrick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so even though Louise is the one who, I wouldn't say her name is like a household name, mm-hmm. but, you know, any time that you look up test tube baby or IVF or first IVF, you see Louise Joy Brown. Right. So her little sister was, you know, not exactly in the spotlight until she had that baby at 17. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, my goodness, the first IVF baby to have a baby. And right, so then right, she right. got a little bit of her little 15 minutes of fame, too. Mm-hmm. So that leads us to the first test tube baby born in the United States. Judith and Roger Carr first met as students at the University of Maine. They married in 1973. Judy, a fifth grade school teacher, sadly had three tubal or ectopic pregnancies and ended up having to have both of her fallopian tubes removed, leaving Mm. no chance of conceiving naturally. At the time, IVF was actually illegal in Massachusetts, where the cars live. This brings us to Georgiana Seeger, a gynecologist and reproductive endocrinologist, and Howard Jones, a pelvic surgeon, who had opened the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology at Johns Hopkins Medical Institution in 1939. Ah, Johnny Hopkins? Yeah. Went to school with Johnny Hopkins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. homecoming king. (laughs) Um, And then they married each other a year later. So the two were very interested in researching in vitro fertilization and assisted reproduction. Originally, the pair used the same technique that Dr. Robert Edwards used over in England, no hormones, and only implanting at night. Surprisingly, this did not work. Nearly 40 years after they were married, in 1978, the Joneses moved to Norfolk, Virginia, and despite having already retired, established the now world-renowned Jones Institute for Reproductive Medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School, Hmm. which opened in March of 1980. Lots of applications came flooding in, and among them was one from Judith and Roger. Hmm. Now, Judy seemed like the perfect patient. She was young and healthy, and she definitely was not going to be able to conceive through the conventional means. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Joneses took her on as a patient. Judy had to drive to and from a local hospital three times a day for three weeks to get injections of Perganol, which was a hormone to increase her egg production. Mm. She was committed. Yeah. After those three weeks, Judith flew to Norfolk, Virginia, so that her eggs could be retrieved by Dr. Jones. 
The process had been so successful that Roger was summoned to the hospital to give his semen right away. <clears throat> the fertilization took place without a hitch, and on April 17, 1981, the embryo was implanted into Judy. Mm. And that day just so happened to be the lucky lady's 28th birthday. Mm. And so the staff sang happy birthday to her during the procedure. Ah, isn't that? That is very nice. All went well, surprisingly. Worried that their lives would be completely chaotic and stressful if the media caught wind of their pregnancy. The couple chose to stay anonymous right up until it was time to give birth. The doctors scheduled a cesarean section for December 28, 1981, and Judy lived in a condo near the hospital in Norfolk for the last month of her pregnancy. Mm. The delivery went perfectly well, and Elizabeth Jordan Carr was born healthy at 7.46 a.m. Mm. Now, interestingly, the reports I found said that baby Elizabeth weighed five pounds, 12 ounces, which happens to be exactly the same weight that was reported as Louise Joy's birth weight. Hmm. So I'm not sure if somebody's mixed up somewhere, but I right. found it in a few different places. So maybe they just happen to weigh exactly the same when they were born. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Now, Elizabeth was the 15th baby born from IVF in the whole world. And the first in America. She has been in and out of the media spotlight ever since her birth. She was on the cover of Life magazine in November mm -hmm. 1982. It was the cutest little picture. She's sitting in the lab like by a microscope and she's just the cutest little thing. Mm. Um, and her baptismal gown is actually in the Smithsonian Museum. Really? Yes. Huh. Now, especially on birthdays, she's often seen on morning talk shows, and a local news crew even documented her high school prom, which she said was very awkward, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. Now, Elizabeth herself went into journalism as a career. After attending Simmons College in Boston, she worked for a newspaper in Maine and eventually took a job with the Boston Globe online. She quit the Globe in 2014. She is currently married to her second husband and has a son named Trevor from her first marriage, who was conceived naturally and is now 12 years old. She wrote a book titled Under the Microscope, the USA's First IVF Baby, which was released January 7th of 2022. <laughs> Elizabeth is now 41 and she lives in Keene, New Hampshire. And although she lost her father in June of 2021, she still has her mom. And Elizabeth is, unsurprisingly, a huge proponent for ART and an advocate for access for all to infertility help. Mm. So isn't that a sweet that story a, of her? It's a very sweet story. Yeah. Yeah. Very so, cool. With all of that being said, mm -hmm. I have a little quiz for you. I love me a quiz. I know you do. Yeah. So I have a list of some celebrities okay. who underwent some serious fertility treatments, IVF, et cetera, uh -huh. to get pregnant. Okay. Um, and 
the quiz will be I will give you multiple choice of what they named their child or children. Ooh, okay. And you have to tell me which is correct. And you might know these or you might not. Okay. All right. So we will start with Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields did lots and lots of IVF to get her mm -hmm. first daughter. Was her first daughter's name Joan, Rowan, or Janet? Rowan. Correct. Yes. You did great on that Thank one. you. First. Okay. Uh, Gabrielle Union, who yes. married Dwayne Wade. Um, uh -huh. She had to have lots of IVF in order to get pregnant, and she finally had her daughter. Was her daughter's name Latvia, Kavia, or Bulimia? Kavia. Yes. yes. Kavia James. Um, Elizabeth Rome, who I wouldn't know her by her name, but she was on Law and Order. Mm -hmm. And um, her IVF treatments earned her a daughter. Did she name her daughter Easton, Weston, or Direction? Easton. Yes, it is Easton. I was like, is it? Yeah, yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Christy Brinkley. We all know Christy Brinkley. And uh, we all um, know she has a daughter named Sailor. Uh, yes. Okay. But her older daughter is not yes. Sailor. Billy Joel's daughter. Yes. Is, is hold on a second. Is, well, I gotta you gotta listen. Oh, to my, yeah, you're giving me you gotta choices. let me give you your multiple choices. Okay. I think I is know her it. name Contessa, Alexa, no. or Alexa. Osexa? Alexa. Yeah. yeah. Sadly, it's not Osexa. <laughs> I wish it was Osexa. I know. Not for her, but for the show. Right. Okay. Uh, Mariah Carey. Interestingly. Needed lots of IVF in order to get pregnant with Nick Cannon. Well, that's uh, just ridiculous. I thought right. everybody, I mean, I got pregnant by Nick Cannon. We never even, I never even been in the same room with him. Right. Just watching him on television. Mariah Carey needed IVF? Triplets. Yes. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yes. And so she did. And she had she twins. Has twins. Yes. Yes. Um, so are their names Monroe and Moroccan, Lincoln and Hawaiian, or Hoover and Egyptian. Uh, Monroe and Moroccan. Of course. Yeah. Yes. I just wanted, I had a lot of fun with those ones. Those names, of course. Yeah. All right. Tyra Banks, through IVF, was able to have a son. Did she name him Mork, Dork, or York? Um, Boy, I wish it was Mork. <laughs> I'm going to say York. Yes, it was okay. York. Uh -huh. Okay. Marsha Cross had mm -hmm. twins through IVF. Did she name her twin daughters Georgia and Heaven, Savannah and Eden, or Atlanta and Garden? I think it's Savannah and Eden. That's right. Yes. You're very good at this. Thank you. Two more. Uh, Celine Dion. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, had some fertility treatments and was gifted with twin boys. Mm -hmm. Did she name them Axel and Gandhi, Nikki and Mandela, or Eddie and Nelson? Oh. <laughs> Eddie and Nelson. Yes. Okay. I yes. 
That was a total guess. I totally <laughs> okay. And then that. lastly, we have Angela Bassett. Okay. Who was a little bit older when she was finally able to get pregnant and she mm-hmm. had twin boys. Mm-hmm. Were they Bronwyn and Slater, Bronze and Screech, or Pubert and Jesse? Uh, you know what? I, I wish it was. <laughs> I hope it's Pubert and Jesse. Ah, <laughs> oh, darn, you missed one. Is it Bronwyn? Bronwyn and Slater. Okay. Yes. yes. Well, dang, you killed that I did one, pretty girl. good. I did pretty good on that. You did great. Thank you. So Thank those you. are just a very small uh, sample of celebrities who apparently went through it uh-huh. in order to get pregnant. Well, yeah. it's an amazing, um, amazing technology. It certainly is. Yeah. It's and just... eventually... Someday when we do an episode on surrogates, we'll have a whole nother list of surrogates. Oh, I bet. Yeah. So There's a lot of, of surrogates, right? Yeah. Yes. And I think for so many different reasons too, but. Right, right, right. We'll get to that. Uh-huh. But, but yeah, so they say that 10% of women aged 15 to 44 are, they struggle to get pregnant. 10%. Really? Yeah. And they have to you know, go through all the treatments and everything in order to hopefully achieve a pregnancy. Um, yeah. And it's gotten very expensive mm-hmm. and I don't know exactly how much it costs, of course, but yeah, I have no idea. I know it's, I know it's, it's a whole lot. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully your insurance covers it if you need it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, thank but that's you for, for, for the lesson. Very, sure. very interesting. Very. Yeah. I hope I lived up to Melissa's expectations. I hope I she hope got so. all I'm the info sure, she wanted. I'm sure you did. I'm sure I did. And boy, that was some juicy stuff. Going that on. was some juice. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's it. Anything else? Nope. Not on my end.